Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with veteran aviation lawyer Mark Fava. Mark started his career as a judicial law clerk and litigation attorney in Charleston, South Carolina, but for the past 20 plus years has worked in aviation law. In August 2001, a few weeks before 9-11, he went to work for Delta as a chief operations attorney, managing passenger litigation and defending the company for all FAA actions. He then worked as a law firm partner focused on litigation and regulatory matters related to airlines, and for the past 13 years has been at Boeing, where he served in a number of different legal and executive roles. He's an active writer and speaker about the legal profession and specifically his passion for aviation law, which I'm so excited to talk to him about today. He has a blog called TheAviatorLawyer.com. He's taught CLE courses, and he's also working on a book called What I Learned from the Admiral about business and leadership lessons that he learned as an admiral's aide. So lots to talk about, Mark, and he's also a big fan of the podcast, so it's always great to get to meet fans and bring them into sort of the guest family. Mark's a graduate of the University of North Carolina, go Tar Heels, and the University of South Carolina Law School, go Gamecocks. We won't get into any tensions between those two schools. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for being here. Uh, Jonah, it's just great to be here. I've listened to the podcast for so long. It does does so many great things, not only for law students, but also for lawyers struggling with, you know, what are they going to do in their next career? And that's why I was fascinated by it. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, look, let's start by going back a little bit and thinking about sort of your decision to become a lawyer and go to law school. Let me hear a little bit about that to start. It's interesting. As a young child, I was a Navy dependent. So dad was in the Navy and we uh, did some elementary school in Guam of all places, came back to Charleston in the mid seventies and uh, didn't have that good of an education. I I was lacking a little bit. Uh, got in an eighth grade class and had an English teacher. Mrs. Roby was her name. And she grabbed me and she said, you're going to do this. You're going to learn English. And oh, by the way, you're going to go be a speaker at the Optimist Oratory Contest. And I said, Hmm. I don't want to do any of the above. And from eighth grade, there was the... uh, the push from an educator to get into some type of oratory. And uh, I went and I did very well. And from there on to high school and really enjoyed writing, had an English uh, professor that uh, was really good at uh, teaching me writing in high school. And then went to Chapel Hill and ROTC and um, decided uh, to go into aviation. I really didn't want to be on a plane. Didn't want, I'm sorry, didn't want to be on a submarine and didn't want to be uh, on a ship, which is kind of odd for somebody going in the Navy. But I chose a land-based uh, a land-based plane, a P-3 Orion, which at that time was, you know, running around the world chasing the Soviet submarines at the height yeah. of the Cold War. So it was a lot of fun. And everybody knows when you're in the Navy, you also get a ground job. So during the daytime, I might be flying or the nighttime, I'd be flying. But my ground job, I became the legal officer in the squadron. And that was really where I got by the law school book. So that you were a legal officer before you ever went to law school. Is that right? Yes. So talk to me a little bit about that job, because that's something I've never heard of, and that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's great. So most uh, most Navy units will have a, what they call a non-lawyer legal officer. You go for about four to six weeks up in Newport, Rhode Island, no better place to go for four to six weeks in the springtime. You go to the Naval Justice School, and they teach you how to process 
most of the administrative, uh, lower level, what I would say, judicial, non-judicial actions. And you can even do a summary court martial. So, hmm. but you're always being supervised by a JAG. So that's how got even further because the JAG at the time was a lieutenant commander. I was a young lieutenant. He would review all my work. Great guy, another mentor of mine called Lieutenant Commander Hank Malinengo. And, and Hank, uh, when I finished my first squadron tour as a legal officer, he said, look, you're good at being a legal officer. You need to come up to Maine and work on the Admiral staff as an aide with me. And I said, I don't want to do that. He said, no, come on up. Maine was foreign to me. You know, I've been raised in the South. So mm-hmm. went up there and did that. And uh, from there, two years later, he said the same thing. He said, how about law school? And that's when I made the decision to go to law school, really because of Hank, who went on to become a uh, an admiral in the Navy himself and a GW uh, law professor and dean after that. So just a great guy. Awesome. And talk to me a little bit about the transition that happens a little bit later after you graduate law school of both choosing to and finally getting into aviation law, right? I know that a lot of people come to law school from a military background and then end up doing things unrelated to their military career. I'm curious about sort of, did you know when you graduated law school, like, I want to be an aviation lawyer to the extent that career even existed? I really didn't. I've always had a passion, you know, for planes. I was the kid that would sit at the end of the runway on the weekend and just watch them fly over, you know, when there was nothing better to do with my mom and dad in the station wagon. Hmm. So, and I was still flying in the reserve. So even though I got out of active duty, I was still going to Jacksonville. And I thought, uh, and I'm in the backseat, right? So I'm not a pilot, but I was a navigator and a mission commander in this plane. And I thought, if you love this so much, how can you turn this into uh, a practice area? A clerk like you did for the first couple of years, who was a judge, who actually still is a mentor today on the federal bench in Charleston. And then I uh, went to a small litigation firm doing like many of us start out with, you know, small car accidents, defending them, and then moved on to bigger things that moved. I did uh, work for the railroad, CSX Railroad, defending train accidents, hmm. but really wanted to get into aviation and had a uh, best friend from high school who I'd actually talked into going to law school was at Delta at the time. And he called me up in the summer of 2001 and said, uh, uh, hey, why don't you come work for Delta? And I said, absolutely not. You know, I've got a two-year-old. I just bought a lot with my wife. We're getting ready to build a house. You know, all the stuff we know as parents. And totally. And oh, by the way, I was serving three of a four-year term on our local town council. I was in local in politics. And uh, he just said, well, why don't you just come interview with us? So I did. And the rest is history. (laughs) Wow. In a very short sort of encapsulation of that really foundational part of your life and your the beginning of your legal career, you check off so many boxes of things that I hear about across guests from across the country and across areas, right? I hear this like passion for a subject that has nothing to do with law and then trying to sort of connect that passion with law. It's mentors telling you and kind of having faith in you that you may not even have faith in yourself at that point. Yes. And saying yes to things that, frankly, in the moment, if you, in retrospect, you might have wanted to say no. And all of those things seem to sort of come together in those first sort of whatever, five, seven years of your career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I go back and I talk to the judge that I'd clerk for, and I said, Judge, I'm thinking about going to Delta to work in Atlanta. You know how much I love uh, home. He did the same thing. He looked at me and said, if you want to be an aviation lawyer, you got to go to Delta. The buddy of mine that was recruiting me said the same thing. He said, listen, there's no downside. Come do it. So I went home to my wife and said, uh, hey, would you like to go to Atlanta? And she said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, how about if we just go for a couple of years? And I promise you, if you don't like it and we don't get situated there, we'll come back. And that's exactly what we did and and how neat that played out. Little did we know 41 days after I got there, 9-11 would occur. So it it changed everybody's life. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I also just love that mental mindset shift of instead of saying, this is what I want to do, like thinking about what's the worst case scenario. And if the worst case scenario is not that awful, then that also can give you comfort in those moments. And that's something that I talk to my students about a lot is it's important to think like, what is my goal? What is the best case scenario? But also think about the downside risk. And if the downside risk is low, that can really be helpful as well. But I really want to hear about this transition to Delta 41 days before 9-11. I think that's like just such a important moment. I mean, maybe the most important moment, frankly, in American aviation history. And you have 41 days of experience as a true aviation lawyer at that point. Tell me a little bit about, we heard about how you got to Delta, but that whole experience, what were you doing? What changed after 9-11? And what did you learn in those moments? Yeah, you know, I was working for another phenomenal mentor. At that time, the general counsel was a gentleman named Greg Riggs, fine lawyer. If you look at the things that impact my life, one will be COVID, but clearly uh, 9-11 was the biggest impact. My wife and and young daughter, two-year-old at the time, were still in Charleston. So I was a geo-bachelor in, you know, residence in or some type of hotel. And we were actually, you know, if you land at the Atlanta airport, right there on the side is the Renaissance uh, Hotel. It overlooks the the airfield, my favorite hotel, because you can actually sit there on a balcony, watch planes land all day long and all night long. Mm. And we were there with all of our corporate security people nationwide in a conference room when everybody's pagers started going off. You know, back then we didn't have cell phones, but everybody's pagers were going off. Right. And we took a break because we didn't know what was going on. And uh, I remember uh, walking outside and the general counsel asking me, we heard a plane and crashed into one of the Trade Center towers. And he looked at me very bizarre because this guy's brilliant, right? Always thinking ahead. He said, did you watch the Today Show this morning and see the news? And I said, well, yeah, he knew I did every morning before I came to work. And he said, what was the weather like in New York? I said, it looked like a beautiful, clear day to me. And he just looked at me and said, something's not right. I mean, he immediately knew that if a plane had hit the Trade Center in the middle of what we would call a VFR day, a clear day, something was wrong. If I had told him it was cloudy, from there, we activated our emergency operations center. We got down to grounding every single plane. We couldn't account for one. The last plane was unaccounted for, and we didn't know... um, at the time, uh, if it was what was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were very fortunate at Delta, we didn't have uh, any of the planes involved, but we were watching all of it as it unrolled. And I got to tell you, it was it was the most horrific thing as a lawyer, seeing it as a father, longing to be you know, mm-hmm. with my wife and my child at the time, knowing I wasn't going to get there and realizing dynamically that every single aircraft in the U.S. system was told to, to get down on the ground. And the Atlanta airport, Joan, I'll never forget this, that had been buzzing with jet engine and noise every day I was there for 41 days, was completely silent for a week. It's just mm. incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think for any of us who are of a remembering age, that is one of those defining moments that will be a defining moment yeah. sort of going forward. For me, that was, I was a junior in high school and I remember it like it was yesterday and I was in the DC suburbs and we had heard about the Pentagon and we had no idea. You know, that moment was so important, but also what happened sort of in the weeks, days, weeks, and months after, I'm sure also whatever you were hired to do sort of goes out the window a little bit when you have sort of that massive, traumatic, huge change to an industry and frankly, to a country in that moment. Talk to me a little bit about what happened next, especially sort of as someone who's an on-the-ground operations attorney. It was probably a week or so, as I recall, before we even started flying again. And just getting the whole system back and up and running was just incredibly difficult. From a legal perspective, again, I'm, I'm working with one of the most brilliant aviation lawyers at the time. 
he called me in his office and he said, hey, look, I, I want you to go to every single place where the terrorists got on uh, aircraft. And I want you to walk from wherever they were to wherever hmm. they ended up, go through the wow. gate, go through the security checkpoint. And again, I'm just thinking there weren't any Delta planes. What are you even talking about? You know, we're not going to be parties. Novice me, we're not going to be parties to any litigation. But Jonah, back then, all the security checkpoints were contracted. You know, we didn't have, this was pre-TSA. So we didn't even have the TSA then. And the way it worked was there were sharing agreements between the air carriers at the airports for the contracts for the security screeners. And we were in those sharing agreements. And one of the, uh, one of the terrorists, Muhammad Atta, had come in through Portland, Maine and connected. And that was our checkpoint. Of all the places, the one place we had a checkpoint. So hmm. it was the most eerie thing I've ever done. A couple weeks later, I was probably one of two people on a plane going up to, I visited Newark, I visited uh, Dallas, and I visited Portland, talked to the people that were there, interviewed the people, got the contracts for the security screening companies. And sure enough, three or four years later, we were in all those lawsuits. And again, this guy knew, you know, he, he just knew that was going to come. Yeah. That's the wisdom that I think you get from experience, Yes, right? And the wisdom of telling you, young lawyer, right? You're thinking- what am I doing flying to these places to walk through checkpoints? Right. I have a federal clerkship. I have a JD. I have a BA. Like, what is it that lawyer Mark could possibly do in this moment? And it sounds like your supervisor and mentor really had the wisdom to know, no, 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 we need to figure out what our risk is. We need to get those contracts. Lawyers need to be on the ground in person seeing this even before it happens. Yeah. And again, I tell people that all the time. I used to take, like you did, I used to take depositions and it would just, for very small car accidents, and it would just fascinate me to understand that. And I could tell that the other side had never even been to the intersection because they'd just mm. be asking, you know, dumb questions. So here I was walking the same, I knew which gate they'd gone through. I knew when they'd gone out of a screening place and back into a screening place. And, you know, fast forward to my current job, same thing when I first started it. You know, I made a mistake, and and this is to your point. So many years later, and and I told you know I was general counsel that my current employer was asking me, how did this even happen? And I said, look, I'm finally I just I was always taught own up to it. I just said, I'm sorry, I just you didn't see this coming. And he looked right at me, and this is Mike Ludig, who you know is pretty brilliant legal mind, and he said, Mark, I pay you to be in this position to see things and think of things that are going to happen. Don't ever say that to me again. You know, so I was like, wow, wow. okay. <laughs> Wow. Wow. I mean, first of all, great advice. Second of all, to get that advice, former Judge Ludig, that's something else. That's something else. I got a lot of very direct advice from Judge Ludig. I, I, uh, <laughs> brilliant legal mind and built an incredible law department at, at the company, but it was just uh, the people that know him will know exactly how he said that. And it was very pointed, but he was right. You know, this is why you're here. You need to be thinking about these things. This is, you know, this is why I picked you. And it was just another reminder of just going back to Delta. Okay, I always need to be thinking what's around the corner, what's ahead, what could happen. Yeah. And it's also that reminder of a, a word that comes up a lot in my interviews and is frankly comes up a lot with people who have more experience, which is they're really looking for judgment. Yes. Right? They're looking for that. Looking around those corners might be another way to frame that concept of judgment. Such an important sort of skill and mindset for a lawyer. Right. Identifying the issues. And then the judgment about, it's not written in any logbook, but you better have the judgment to figure out what's the best path ahead or what are the alternate paths ahead. Totally. So like, talk to me a little bit about sort of either what that role was in sort of terms of like, what was the litigation like that followed? And then ultimately, I'd like to sort of transition to your time doing aviation law and private practice. But what else, if anything, do you remember about those sort of bread and butter years of doing litigation working in-house? It was just managing that what we all do, right? And what I know you talk about, 
managing the family. Okay. I've got to be flying, working nonstop. Now I went to what I thought was going to be this cush corporate in-house job. And I was going to fly all the way around the world on space. A travel with my kids or my daughter and my wife. And that just went away. You know, there was none of that. No one was going on vacation anywhere. We had a lot of work to do. We had to go back with a trade group and negotiate with the FAA to get rid of a bunch of old cases to enter into a global settlement with them on a bunch of enforcement cases because this new thing called the TSA was coming. Mm -hmm. So we had to do that. We faced, we started to face uh, some of the 9-11 litigation and I was still handling the passenger claims, all the other passenger litigation with some great outside lawyers. So it was fascinating. And then on top of all that, Jonah, this was sort of an old school Delta general counsel. And he said, look, one of the things you have to do if you're going to come work for my Georgia company in Georgia is you got to take the Georgia bar. And I was like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. So wow. on top of all that, you know, here I am six, seven years out of law school, <laughs> going back and studying for the bar exam. And it got to, finally got my wife and child there. And I got to a week before the bar exam and I knew my job was contingent on it. I'd been in the job a year. I was taking the Georgia bar exam. And finally I just said, look, Either you've got to go somewhere, I've got to go somewhere. So I sent her back to Charleston for a week so I could study for the last week and pass the bar exam. But uh, it was just a great, a great uh, three years and um, really networking with people, the aviation insurers in New York City, the outside counsel, and then really getting to know the other lawyers at the other air carriers, which was just phenomenal. Fascinating. And it always, it does take a village no matter what that village looks like, right? Right. So you were there for about two, two plus years. Talk to me about the return to private practice, but this time, unlike doing whatever was sort of coming at you, it sounds like you really tried to transition to a primarily aviation-based practice in a partnership role. Talk a little bit about how that happened and then sort of what your day-to-day -day life was when you moved back to being outside counsel. One of the lifelong lessons I've learned is you never burn bridges, right? So many of us leave employers and you've, you should really leave on good terms. And I left the law firm and it was as a senior associate to go to Delta. And two and a half years later, I called the same managing partner back up, a real good friend of mine running my litigation, running the litigation group at the time. And I'd say, Hey, Richard, do you remember me? And he said, yeah, I remember you. He goes, how's it going? <laughs> I said, it's going great. But I said, I'd like to come back to Charleston if the opportunity presents itself. He was very frank. He said, we'd love, Mark, we'd love to have you. He said, but we don't have any work for you. So, you know, if you come back, you can do that, but there's no place on the team. We don't have the capacity now. And at that time, there was one other pilot on the, there was a pilot aviator um, lawyer former Vietnam guy who had an a very small aviation practice, but just not doing a whole lot of it. And he said, you know, maybe you can take what Dick has and rejuvenate it. And that's what I was able to do. You know, I made the promise to my wife, if it didn't take, we'd come back. I moved her back. I commuted for the last year. We built the same house, cost a little bit more. We bought a lot about a block or two down the street, cost a little bit more. And then I commuted until I got back to Charleston and then I said, okay, it's up to me. And that's sort of another thing that I, I tell everybody all the time. Don't sit around and, you know, wait. If you want to be an aviation lawyer, then figure out how to do it. And I was very fortunate. So I knew all the lawyers at the air carriers, and I was probably the only person in South Carolina that had worked for an airline as a lawyer. Hmm. And I knew all the aviation insurers, most of which were in New York City. So I continued to be active in the Bar Associations group, the Air and Space Lawyer group. And just really started the market. Any opportunity I got to read or to write or to publish about an aviation um, entity or something in the law. I mean, I published stuff on 9-11, what it was like to be at Delta. I went and spoke. I finally got to speak at the SMU Air Law Symposium, which is the biggest, the premier CLE. 
And all of that was uh, at great expense, right? Because you know, when you're doing that, you're not billing hours. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) I had as a goal, okay, I've got to build this presence. I've got to build this practice area. And five or six years later, I did. And it got to the point, if you Googled aviation lawyer, Southeast or South Carolina, I was coming up as the number one hit. And that was a lot of hard people. Oh, you're very lucky. I said, yeah very lucky. There were several years where I didn't get a bonus because I'd marketed so much and I had barely met my goal, Mm. but I knew what I wanted to do and I knew where I wanted to be. And that was just fun doing that. Wow. I love that idea. There's this, like the great myth of the overnight success, right? And it's, it's an overnight success that took you 15 years to become or something like that. But we only see the overnight success. We only see when we were sort of corresponding back and forth, you wrote, I remember the day when I was finally quoted in the Charleston newspaper as aviation lawyer, Mark Fava. And I just, that like, the fact that you remember that and that that was a goal that you were working toward is such an important lesson, I think, for lawyers and for young lawyers. Because the question I get a lot, and frankly, I left big law practice before I got to this point, so I'm curious about your take on it, which is no matter what you're doing, how do you build that reputation and that book of business? Are there any lessons from your career that you would share with somebody who's trying to sort of think about this task now? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this sort of gets back to the book I'm writing and, and the blog. It's all about what I've learned, right? So if I want to do that, I've got to figure out how other people have done it and take their secrets of success. And hmm. and the uh, the newspaper was just phenomenal. I went to this CLE called, you know, Marketing for Lawyers and The one tip I took away from that was if you want to be quoted in the newspaper as that expert, find the person at the newspaper who has your beat. Find the person that talks about aviation and just start sending them random emails. I'm like, well, God, that's just, that's going to be irritating. But I just, I did. I found the person at the Charleston paper who covered the aviation beat. And I would just say, hey, don't know if you saw this, be happy to talk to you about it. Or, hey, you know, saw so-and-so was coming into town. Or, or this new thing has happened and never got a response. I mean, it was like four or five months, never got a response. And I was driving to work one morning and the phone rings and he's on the cell phone and he says, uh, hey, Mark, this is, you know, John so-and-so from the Post and Courier. And I was like, oh my God, this is the person I've been spamming for six months, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he says, did you hear uh, so-and-so was coming to town? I think it was AirTran back in the day, right? They were coming into town to compete with Delta on the Atlanta to Charleston route and uh, the former airliner AirTran. And he said, hey, you see AirTran's coming. Um, do you have, uh, what do you have to say about that? Well, I learned two other things at the, at the marketing CLE. When the reporter calls you, you ask them when their deadline is, mm-hmm. and then you get back to them quickly. Because if you don't, what are they doing? They're going on to somebody else because they've got a deadline. Absolutely. So I said, what's your deadline? He said, I need to know in an hour. And I said, okay. And I said, uh, I'll get back to you. I pulled over on the side of the road. I Googled it. I read a couple things about it. I wasn't even completely aware of what was going on. And then you give them one short sentence soundbite, right? Not a long lawyer dissertation. And I just said something like, it's going to be some big competition for Delta. Well, here I am talking about my former employer. And I think that was the quote in the paper. It was like, aviation lawyer, <laughs> former. I'm like, oh, God. And they were my current client at the time. So I was thinking, oh, boy, I hope I'm not going to get trouble. But it was the next day. It said, aviation lawyer Mark Fava said. And uh, it was just tips that I picked up from this CLE that, that made that happen. Wow. I love that. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go from being in-house to being outside counsel, even for maybe the same entity, right? So you're playing a really different legal role, but you're functionally, I think, largely working, right, for the same client 
doing maybe the same cases. What was the difference there? And sort of what did you learn from sort of jumping back and forth between inside and outside counsel? Yeah, it's great because that was kind of an interesting thing. So when I'm inside counsel at Delta Airlines, the aviation insurers are my, we're paying them a lot of money for a multi-million, if not billion dollar policy. And they technically, I'm their client, right? They serve the policies. And at the end of the day, we know the law and that, you know, how that goes. But when the switch occurred and I went to be a, a senior associate and then ultimately a partner in Charleston, it was the other way around, right? They were hiring me to do work for Delta. And at the end of the, I was the person at the end of, of the line. So they were my buddies. But again, there was an expectation now mm-hmm. that, you know, you're not just going to have wine with us and come have a nice meal. Oh no, you know, you are the employer and we have expectations, you know, and I never will forget it. I got hired to represent Delta on an international case out of, uh, out of Fumicina airport in Rome. And one of the potential downsides for the case was that the Italian authorities were talking about impounding under their law, impounding a Russian aircraft. I'm sorry, impounding a um, Delta aircraft at the time because they can do that. And because Delta had done something they alleged they had done. So I remember Sunday night, I'm getting ready to fly over to Italy, you know, enjoying probably the crown room and a nice meal. And the VP from the insurer calls me and he said, let me just tell you something. He says, you're going over there now? He says, you do not let them impound an aircraft. Do you hear me? You know, and and I was like, okay, this is where the friendship is getting into the business relationship. Right. Because if that happens, Mark, you have failed. You got it? You know, I was like, oh, okay. So here was the guy that had wine and dined me for years. Right. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Right. Yeah. And that was something that it hit home real quick that night. Which did you find more fun, being in-house or outside? I think the collegiality of the law firm is great. Like, you know how that is. Just the ability to always be around other lawyers in the morning, to chat with them, to laugh. But the pressures are are phenomenal, right? And people always think, well, if you go in-house, it's easy. There's nothing easy about being in-house. You have the same demands, the same pressures. But I found it to be much more enjoyable from the aspect of in a business, and I'm at a business advisor, learning the business. Hmm. That was another thing that Mike Ludig told me as soon as I got hired. He just said, you got to know the business. I knew that from being at Delta. And then he said, if they don't like you and they don't invite you to the meeting, you're of no value to me. Hmm. Okay, I get it. You have to be a trusted partner, but they also have to like you. So I really enjoyed being in-house and and just uh, still the pressure, still the work ethic, but at the same time, the ability to learn from engineers, you know, learn from business people, finance people, uh, has just been a lot fun and a lot more exposure than, than doing that in the law firm. Yeah, it's really interesting because one of the things I hear from lawyers all the time, especially from those who are at law firms, is they say the one thing they've found sort of time and again in their career is the more they can learn about their client's business, the better they can represent their client. Absolutely. Ultimately, what you're saying is like if you're in-house – that's not just helpful to being great. That's sort of like, that's table stakes. You have to do that. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. L- listen, the, when I got the job at Boeing, I, I knew how to run an airline because I learned from some great people at Delta. I had no idea what they were talking about when they were building planes. I mean, hmm. there were so many acronyms. I'd sit in the first meeting and I, I wouldn't understand half of what was said. It was like foreign language all over again. And I'd whisper to somebody and say, what does that mean? What does that mean? And one of the assistants, one of the executive office assistants said, Mark, if you really want to learn the business... You need to be here at seven o'clock every morning and go on the boardwalk. And I said, what's the boardwalk? And we had these big old whiteboards and the whiteboards would be such that you would um, go walk from place to place and just listen to each different phase of the manufacturing business. Where was the build going on? And you would learn. And it would start with all the manufacturing executives and managers. And I didn't really understand that, but boy, I did it every morning for like six or seven months. 
And they were all like, what is the lawyer doing here? The lawyer, ne we've never had a lawyer come here. And I never will forget the same thing about the third week. No one would talk to me. They're just like, I don't know what he's doing here. Just, you know, crazy lawyer. And then about the third or fourth week, the vice president, the head of the operation, as we were walking from one building to the other, said, you're not going to leave, are you? You're going to keep coming to these meetings? I said, yes, sir. And then he became my best friend. He would, in between the buildings, he would tell me, here's what we were talking about. Here's what we were discussing. And I'd say, well, why is this important? So here's what that meant. So, uh, boy, uh, within a year, I could be in those meetings and understand the majority of what they were saying and speak with credibility. And I guess you could obviously go back and you had all that legal experience from actually having tried cases and worked on contracts. And it was, you were picking up that additional sort of substance area knowledge of not just sort of aviation writ large, but really narrow planes. Right. I mean, just down to in South Carolina, we start with a piece of carbon tape that comes off a large spool and we wrap it around these huge mandrels. And then we put it in an autoclave and we bake it and that becomes the fuselage section of the plane. And just to understand that build and where the parts are coming in from around the world and who the suppliers are mm. and then who the personalities are in the buildings was just, just phenomenal. Talk to me a little bit more about that transition to go to Boeing. Cause at that point you had been doing this for a little while. You had played a bunch of different roles. What were you thinking when you decided to make that shift and shift that, frankly, at least looking from the outside, has been really successful for you. We had a, a DC office, and I got admitted in DC. I figured out I could wave into DC, right? So then I could also say I was admitted to practice in DC. I had maybe three or four associates doing airline cases for me throughout the Southeast. We came up with this name. We called ourselves the Southeastern Aviation Law Practice Group. I mean, just something I came up with in the middle of the night. We put, <laughs> it, we, we put it on the website, dropped the star saying admitted to practice in DC. I could get on a plane in DC. I'm sorry, in Charleston and be up in DC, you know, get on the Metro and be in the DC office before anybody showed up. So it was just going really great. But when I heard, I knew Boeing at the time had two suppliers here. And what they ended up doing was we bought out those suppliers and um, built a multi-billion dollar factory, final assembly factory here. And I never, same thing, I never will forget in 2010 when nine, maybe fall, when I knew Boeing was coming, I was on an, again, here we go again, ABA Air and Space Law Forum board. And I didn't get on the board the first year I went to the meeting. It took me five or six years to get on the board of the forum. And lo and behold, one of the lawyers on that board was a vice president from Boeing out of DC. And I talked to him and I said, hey, look, I hear you guys are coming into Charleston. Love to love to work for you if you ever need in-house counsel. And he said, I don't think we're going to need an in-house counsel anytime soon. This was at another CLE in DC. I'd gotten up the courage to ask him. Right. And he said, but just give me your card just in case and let's get another drink. I said, okay, well, at least I tried. No kidding. You know, six weeks later, this guy calls me out of the blue, uh, Brett Gary, and Brett is now the the general counsel of the Boeing Company. Wow. So between hire, getting hired by Mike Ludig, working for Brett at the time, and then the Judge Ludig has left, and now Brett is the, the general counsel of the company. And for me, a dream come true, right? The iconic American, if not worldwide manufacturer of aircraft, lands in my backyard, and here I am. And I'm like going, okay, how do I get that job? Another overnight success that took you 15 or 20 years to build, right? <laughs> to, to build yourself as, right, Charleston aviation lawyer, and then Boeing ends up in Charleston. I remember telling that. And the fortunate thing was I had, I was very fortunate. My father had retired from the Navy, had gotten into local politics. He was the chairman of the of a county administrator for Charleston County, post-Navy retirement job, and then was a member of Charleston County Council. I had played in local politics. So you know, same thing, interviewing with Mike Ludig. He says, look, I got a bunch of real smart former 
Supreme Court law clerks. I'm not one of those. He's clearly, yeah, I'm a South Carolina graduate, just lucky to make a 3-2, unlike you, Jonah. <laughs> so he said, I got a bunch of smart lawyers that want this job. He goes, why should I give it to you? And this is like on my third interview where I'm, you know, walking down the street, sitting in a hotel room, very awkward with him, you know, leaving the law firm at the middle of lunch to go talk to him. And I just looked at him and said, because no one else knows South Carolina like I do. If you want to get stuff done around here, I'm the guy and I'm the only aviation lawyer in the state. Hmm. And he looked at me and said, eh, you got me. And that was the end of the interview. Wow. And same thing. Two weeks later, he said, you know, how do we close this deal? Wow. I absolutely love that. I also just love that you were willing to give that answer. We've talked about how you got to being able to answer like that, but actually giving that answer in that moment took some gusto, perhaps. I tell this to people all the time. There were two or three questions at the end of my third interview. That was one that took gusto. The second one was, uh, okay, the first one was, why are you the person for the job? And then he looked at me and said, I don't even know if you are the person for the job. And then I just said, and this was the gusto one too. I said, I don't know if I want the job. I mean, I really didn't. I mean, I, I thought I did, but for seven or eight years now, I'd come back from Delta. I'd finally got the practice. I was yeah. going to make a bonus. I had an associate in Charlotte, two in Atlanta, a couple in Charleston working with me. On the, I had this team. Yeah. And I said, I don't know if I want the job, Judge. And boy, I'd read that in the book from Barnes & Noble, you know, tell them I want the job. And I'm thinking, oh God, I hope I didn't mess something up here. <laughs> I went home and my wife said, okay, your third interview, did you get the job? And I said, no, nah, I don't know if I got the job. He didn't say anything. I said, what was the last thing you told him? And I said, well, I told him I didn't know if I wanted the job. And she was <laughs> like, are you kidding me? This is your dream job. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I might've blown it on that one. You know, maybe I got too heady. <laughs> well, whatever, all's well that ends well. I love it. You've talked a little bit about what you did sort of when you started at Boeing, but before we get to some more general big picture questions to sort of close out, I do want to hear about what it's like, first of all, what an ombudsman is and sort of what that role is like and, and how much you're drawing on your legal experience and how much you're drawing on your business experience. I always like to talk about the podcast. I'm very open. I have two young girls at home. And I said to them yesterday afternoon, I'm interviewing an aviation lawyer. And my older one looked at me and said, what do you mean an aviation lawyer? I'm like, a lawyer that works with planes. And she goes, oh, well, that's interesting. First time she's ever said that about a podcast. <laughs> and then she said, oh, well, what does he do? And I said, well, he's an ombudsman. And I said, okay, now I got to take a step back. So for those of us eight years to 80, talk about what it's like to be an ombudsman at a, at a place like Boeing. Yeah, it's fascinating. If you think about a university, uh, I'm sure your university has one. Most major corporations are not quite there yet. Almost every hospital has one. And it's just an incredible way to break through a lot of the frustration or bureaucracy if someone has has a problem or a challenge. And, and I was very fortunate that they decided to create this position, oh, about eight or nine months ago. And it really is to work with our employees who have a uh, have delegation authority with the FAA. So we have over a thousand employees that can sign on behalf of the FAA, which is a pretty significant responsibility. Clearly we took some criticism related to that. And how can you do that? How can we let employees do this? But it's been part of a system that works very well, not only for us, but for you know every other manufacturer that we, we let the FAA as a regulatory authority now pick and choose those people and approve them. And then we trust them. So it very is unloyally in many respects, right? There's loyally in that it's confidential. Anybody can in that group can come talk to me and it's confidential. But the unloyally thing about it is it's also based on uh, being informal, no notes, no records. So you're just sitting there talking to somebody that has an issue and helping them work through the issue. And then if you want to take action, you take action with their permission, but you keep uh, their identity confidential and private. And, and that's the fun part about it, right? That's using the legal skills. I've got a problem. I've got an issue. Uh, how do I get a solution that helps the company move forward 
uh, very quickly, uh, hopefully, and cut the bureaucracy or the frustration. Although they have plenty, and sometimes I just refer them to an existing, look, you're right, I think you need to go CHR. Look, you're right, I think you need to go file a formal complaint. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the most satisfying part of any lawyer's job, right? The ability to help an individual. It's great to help a company, but man, if you can have, you know, somebody has something very weighty on their head and you can help them work through that, that's what an ombuds does. And there's actually an International Ombuds Association. I was at the three-day convention in Seattle a couple of weeks ago and just a fascinating group. And I'd say about, you know, about a third of those folks were lawyers and the others are just other professionals that, you know, that have decided this to be their calling. But do you think there's an advantage to having been a lawyer and, and practiced with clients and dealing with duties of confidentiality and other related duties to sort of advocating for your clients and things like that? Does that come in and into play? Oh, absolutely. You're using all the same skills, right? Hmm. So again, the ABA, there's an ombud subsection under the alternate dispute resolution section huh. of the ABA. They're having a, uh, in two weeks now, the, the ADR section of the ABA is having its uh, symposium. And I'm going to go to that again, just to continue to network with people and learn. But you're using those skills in terms of knowing the business. Look, when I read the job description, it would have been very difficult for them to pick somebody from the outside because you really had to understand the inner workings of this company and 40 or 50,000 engineers and who's who in the zoo. Not that somebody else couldn't have done it. It was just, we agreed to do it and to do it, you know, get it up and running pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're using those people skills, right? You're meeting with people, you're getting them to trust you. I interviewed with the CEO for the job and he says, you know, you got two things against you. One, you're a lawyer and two, you're, you know, you're from South Carolina. And I said, yes, sir, I got, I got it. But I've been able to navigate both of those, you know, most of my life. And the first thing I did, Jonah, was get on the plane and go, you know, I went to Wichita, I went to Oklahoma City, I went to Long Beach, Seal Beach, San Antonio, a couple of trips to Seattle, any place where we had this constituency, I dropped in to visit them to try and get that credibility. And I'll start doing it again here in another week or two. Yeah. And one of the things that it sounds like, I mean, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, and I think it was your eighth grade teacher who told you to go practice your public speaking, right? Is it sounds like you've really, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm, I'm really just curious about this. But one of the themes that keeps coming up, which I didn't have in my notes, which are always the best themes, <laughs> is this idea of like being in the room, whether that's at an ABA section or in your local council or law firm or at your outside council. Do you think that has been something that has sort of defined how you've sort of moved forward in your career? Yeah, absolutely. Look, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships, right? Even with the most antagonistic plaintiff's counsel, you know, if I can't sit down and have lunch with that person after the deposition or in the middle of trial and try and offload the emotions about, you know, that, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I remember doing that in trial. Some people come in and we go to mediation and then the client would leave and they say, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go have lunch with opposing counsel. And they said, you're going to do what? I said, let me tell you something. You got a problem. And if you want the problem solved within the next six months, I'm going to go talk to them because that's how we're going to get this done. And I do think, you know, that's how I got my job at Delta. That's how I got my job at Boeing, right? Well, Delta was high school buddy. Boeing was ABA again, Air and Space Law Forum. It really is. That gets you in the door and has been just uh, tremendous to me. And I, and I just, I enjoy meeting people. So, and that's how you establish your credibility. 100%. All right. So we're getting close to the end. So I want to ask two or three more questions. Sure. And the first one is for someone who's listening, and most of the listeners or a lot of listeners are, are more junior lawyers. How can you be an aviation lawyer today? What are the different paths? Maybe the paths that you frankly didn't take. What are the kinds of areas of law either growing or contracting for the, or uh, getting smaller for that matter to sort of practice in this aviation space. Yeah. Well, I will tell you this, you know, at our company, we have that I consider them to be aviation lawyers. 
but they're every subsection of the law. We have real estate lawyers who manage airport, I'm sorry, who manage uh, agreements for all of our facilities. We have environmental lawyers who do the same thing with the real estate. We have transactional lawyers who do the multi-million dollar contracts we have. You know, every time we sell a, a Boeing 787, it's that's over $200 million per plane. You, you have a contract for a hundred of those like United Airlines just did. You've got some very smart lawyers and transactional people working those. So don't limit yourself to, okay, I got to know planes. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, we have a couple hundred lawyers that have pretty much every subject matter. Hmm. If you want to stick to aviation, the best advice would be d do like I did. Find the group of people in your state that talks about airplane law and join it and just go hang out there. Hmm. I uh, First time I went to ABA Air and Space, I said, man, I'd, I'd love to one day be on the board or to, or to speak or to help at a CLE. And they said, well, we need help at a CLE how would you like to be the sponsor coordinator for the next CLE? I'm like, oh man, no one wants to be the sponsor. You know, you got to pick up the phone and call people and beg them for money. But that's what I did. And I did it very well. And three years later, I was speaking there. And then four years later, I was on the board. So find the group and then start talking to them and getting to know them. Yeah. Delayed gratification is really a huge sort of superpower <laughs> for lawyers that, that exactly. I, I think we really don't want. The other thing that I noticed about, especially your sort of recent teaching, your CLA that you worked on in South Carolina, I think was called What I Learned from the Judge. And your current book that you're either almost finished with or finished with is called What I Learned from the Admiral. That tells me that you're trying and really think about what you learn from each experience. And I'm wondering if you could sort of take a step back and think about how you take that advice in such that it becomes a part of you. Because I think for a lot of junior lawyers, it's hard to sort of in the moment see that they're being taught something that they can use. And sometimes we just remember later on. But do you do anything more systematic or any way you think about sort of when people are talking to you such that you can then bring those life lessons out 20, 30 years later? Yeah, you know, I think it's funny. It's a little bit of both. Sometimes it's exactly like you said, Jonah. You don't even realize it. You just you just say, okay, this person does this every time. This is ridiculous. I got to do it because they say I got to do it. And then, you know, I catch myself 10 years later. I'm doing it every time. And I'm going, daggummit, I, I learned this from the judge. This is how the judge practiced law. Totally. And what I learned from the judge was just something, the same thing. Here I was remembering things that this federal judge had taught me. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to write an article. And I wrote an article for the South Carolina Bar Journal. I had a bunch of people say, wow, this is great. Someone said, well, what well, can you come talk at, you know, our CLE? And I said, sure. What do you want me to do? They said, just talk about the article. I said, I can do that all day, you know? So that was great. Right. And then I converted it into a video. So I think to get back to, sometimes I think in the moment you realize, okay, this is important. I got to keep doing this. And sometimes those things just sort of percolate and simulate over the years. And you say, okay, why am I doing this? And who did I learn this from? And uh, I've just been very fortunate to work for people who were mentors that taught me those things, even though at the time I didn't realize why they were important, but they're traits that I see myself, you know, sort of like now I see my dad in me a lot. I was like, okay, dad used to say that all the time. Now I'm saying it. And I think that's why it's been important. If I can pass those things on to others, just like others have passed them on to me, hmm. it's, it's fun. And that's where the, you know, the speaking comes in. I spoke to law school class a couple of weeks ago at University of South Carolina and just fascinating to get up there and, and pass that along. And hopefully little bits of pearls of wisdom can be picked up by others. Yeah. I mean, two takeaways from that answer that I don't want to step on. One, obviously, is you have to put yourself out there a little bit. And frankly, it's not that hard, right? In the, in the world we live in, if you want to create content or say something, somebody may not listen, but there's plenty of opportunities to put it out there, but plenty of people just don't, right? right? They don't think like, they just assume, 
oh, what I learned from the judge is what everybody else is going to learn from their employer and it's not worth it and I shouldn't take the time to put it down. Put it down into words and if people find value, great. Yeah. Yeah, The second thing that you said that really sticks with me is sometimes we're being mentored and we don't even know it. Right. Right. I've had some students recently come into my office and they say, you think a lot about mentorship. Like, how do I get the best mentor? (laughs) And I have some answers to that question, but my primary answer is, like, learn from whoever you're around who has a little more experience than you. Yeah, it just and like you've said, and I've I've seen your great posts and your great advice uh, to law students alike is just yeah, you know, just ask somebody, you know, hey, well, you know, my because I mentor lawyers and engineers, and it, it's fascinating. It's actually kind of fun for me and, and humbling when they say an engineer, okay, hey, can I talk to you? And then putting yourself out, it's uh, you know, I'm working with uh, with Scribe Media out of uh, Austin, Texas, to publish the book, and to get in that program to get accepted by them, you go to a, a weekend workshop or a weekday workshop first. And one of the first things you have to do that get beat out of your head is you got to tell people you're writing a book, you know, because they'll be, oh, yeah, right. They'll be rolling their eyes, you know, and they make you write. I am an author. You know, I'd published a bunch of stuff, but, you know, you sort of get out of this. You just kind of embarrassed telling people like, yeah, I'm publishing a thing. No, no, no. I'm an author. I'm going to publish. And mm-hmm. it really makes that that commitment. But that's where you really are laying it out. And it's so funny because. I think the last year when I finally came out on LinkedIn and said, I'm writing a book, I got more likes than anything else I've ever said. Right. People were liking it left and right, saying, this is great. And I hadn't even published yet. So, but we're on track to do so by the end of the year. And I've got my own deadlines and it's been a lifelong goal. And But it is a risk because I'm like, God, I just, you know, they talk about the fear of that. What if I publish it and, you know, no one buys it or I get bad reviews on Amazon? Oh, well, go to the next book, right? Right. (laughs) We talked about it earlier, right? Understanding the downside risk and realizing that the worst case scenario isn't really bad is a huge mental mindset, I think, for sure. Yes, sir. (laughs) Well, look, we're getting to the end of our time. So I want to end with the same question I ask of, of pretty much every guest, which is just for a piece of advice, something either you share with people who are sort of just starting in our career or something you wish you knew earlier in our career. Earlier in your career, excuse me. Yeah, no. Uh, listen, I think the one thing I violate the rules here, probably give you two things. One thing is, uh, the first would be don't ever give up, right? So the first law firm I worked for was a smaller firm in Charleston. The big law firm I ended up working for, I interviewed with them four times and was rejected four times. My freshman year, no for a clerkship. My sophomore year, for, or second year, no for a clerkship. I finished my federal clerkship. They called me up and said, hey, we want to go to lunch with you. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, they finally realized I'm the guy. And no sooner than we sit down at lunch, they say, we don't have a place for you, but we just like to stay in touch. And I was furious. I was like, what are you kidding? What, what are you wasting my time? After that, I was still interested. It didn't burn the bridge. I was still, thank you very much, still interested. And I bumped into the managing partner, the same managing partner who I work for. I was getting takeout dinner for my family, going home one night, you know, and you got to go up to the bar to get the takeout food. So there I am waiting for my takeout food. And he says, hey, he says, you still interested in our firm? I said, yeah. He said, well, we just had three associates leave. Why don't you come talk to us? I said, listen, I'm not up for a fifth rejection. I said, so, you know, if this is something that's going to happen quick and I'm going to get, I've interviewed with people so many times and everybody over there. He said, nope, I have an offer for you by the end of the week. And that's where I ended up. Wow. But so many people would have, after three or four or five rejections, and that was the firm that had the DC office, and that was the firm that allowed me to be an aviation lawyer and allowed me to come back, uh, same managing partner. Mm. And then I guess the most important bit of advice is I would tell people is if you're, as a young lawyer or a, a less experienced lawyer, if you're in trouble, ask for help. If you're in trouble at a firm, ask for help, because there are people there that will help you, you know, and I, uh, one time, and never will forget this, I was in default. It was the most miserable month of my life. And I went down the hall after I realized I was in default. I called a buddy of mine who was the plaintiff's lawyer, my classmate from University of North Carolina, asked him if I could get out of default. 
And he said, I can't let you out. I got a crazy client. Like, oh boy. So, you know, here the firm is putting the legal malpractice carrier on notice. I'm telling the managing partner. uh, And he just looked at me and says, I got this. I'm going to take care of you. You know, we're going to get out of it. And you you just let me take care of this. But just always know you should have come to me a day or two earlier rather than three days later. Hmm. And sure enough, a month later, he, he helped me out. So the lesson there is ask for help if you feel like you need it. And secondly, when someone asks for help, help them, you know, help them because those are very, very stressful times. hundred percent. Well, look, Mark, this has been such a great conversation. You've had such an interesting career so far, and I'm sure the new role will present new interesting opportunities. And obviously we'll be all the How I Lawyer listeners now will be looking out for your book. Uh, So to the extent you need any more external pressure for deadlines, we can help with that too. But seriously, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you for letting me be your guest and for all you're doing for for the legal community. Sure, really appreciate it. Again, I am Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.